First Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm so glad you came back tonight to, to study this through and to listen to this. I found myself drawing off of a few things that we have talked about over the years, because we kind of have to, to gain the, the full picture and the full understanding. But I also think of what Peter said, that I have no problem stirring you up by way of reminder. That even if we cover some things, there may be some things here tonight that those of you who are real students of the Word and and students of prophecy, you'll say, oh yeah, I know that, I I remember that, and that's great. It'll just uh, implant it deeper, it'll make it more firm for you. For some of you, you'll hear some things you've never heard. And what we're trying to do here is literally to to put together this this great end times picture that the Bible gives us and gives us very literally and very clearly, but we're doing it really over a matter of two, three weeks. We started talking about the rapture of the church on Sunday, this past Sunday. We're going to talk about it some more this next Sunday and, and how it lays in with a literal biblical timeline. We'll consider some of that tonight, and as a matter of fact, I think I shared this on Sunday, by your choice of being here tonight, you're going to understand far more clearly than if you only could be here on the successive Sundays, because there's just, there's all the in-between. It's kind of like pie filling, really. You can come on Sunday and be crusty, or you can come Sunday and Wednesday and you get all the filling as well, and then it makes sense, okay? Can you tell where my mind is? All right, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now as for the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. In 1970, Chicago, the band, the emerging band at that time, dropped their third hit song, Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is? Turns out it was a veiled anti-Vietnam War song. I mean, it doesn't really ever come out and say that, but it's kind of a veiled song about, you know, people living their lives and just going about their, their busyness while the war was going on over here. Does anyone, is anyone paying attention kind of a thing? But what it really speaks to, that song, is the uncertainty of existence. The relativity of life. And does anyone really know what time it is? But there are always those who know. There are always those who seem to have an awareness, an understanding, like the sons of Issachar. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, they were called men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. And that verse is interesting because in talking about Issachar, this was a tribe that realized in the times that they needed to be with David. It was where there was fighting between Saul and David, and Saul was king, and David's trying to stay out of the way, but Saul's trying to have David killed, and he's hunting him down, and the sons of Issachar said, we are going to align ourselves with David. They knew the signs of the times. They knew where they needed to be, and so they defected from Saul's army, and they joined up with David, because they understood their times. Jesus said, When it is evening, Matthew 16, verse 2, you say, fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? And Chuck Missler actually refers to these as the times of the signs. Because there is so much that is taking place in our world. You don't have to go back any further than, oh, 1948. 
and forward to read the signs of the times in these times of the signs and understand where we are in the lay of things in terms of church history. No, we don't know the precise day or the hour of Jesus' return or of the calling home of the church. But we should be able to discern, as Paul says in verse 1, the times and the epochs. And that word epochs is literally seasons. We should have a sense of the season that we're in. Absolutely. We should know how to read the times. And Paul here, he he reminds the Thessalonians, you all know this. I don't need to remind you of this. You all are people who are aware of this. You don't need me to write more about this. Now he's going to, because he's Paul. But they've heard this. He's saying, I taught this to you. You are already aware of these things. The times are the signs. And the signs of the times. And in verse 2 he says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And that is part of the reason why First and Second Thessalonians are written. 2 Thessalonians much more so. Paul will really get into that because there's some confusion on the part of the Thessalonians as to the day of the Lord. When is it happening? They thought that they were going to be called out, taken home to be with Jesus before that began. But now they're having affliction. Now hard times have set in and people in Thessalonica are starting to say, are we already in the day of the Lord? Has the tribulation begun? And so Paul now, at the end of this letter, and then in all of 2 Thessalonians, begins to explain to them how they have not missed anything. And how to really read and understand the times. Specifically now, the day of the Lord. You yourselves know the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now the first prophet, let's go back a bit. The first prophet to coin the phrase, the day of the Lord, was the prophet Obadiah. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 15 wrote, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. He wrote that about the mid-800s B.C. First one to actually use that phrase, but the day of the Lord itself has been described throughout all of history. You can go back as far as as Enoch, come forward to, to Moses, And then for the last thousand years leading up to the first coming of Christ, David talked about the day of the Lord. Isaiah covered it. Amos, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, all of these prophets. The Lord is not intent on leaving His people in the dark. He tells us what we ought to know. Remember, He's the one who declares the end from the beginning. Why? So that we might know what's coming. That we can be aware and be a people who are learned. So Obadiah actually says the day of the Lord is coming 800 years or so, more than that, before Christ. But though he's the first one to say it, Joel is the prophet who fully develops it and gives us, I think, the biggest and best picture of the day of the Lord. So why don't we turn back to Joel for a few minutes. Keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians 5. Go back to the prophet Joel. Just about past midway in your Bibles. A little bit to the right of the middle. Okay? Page 1414. (laughs) The prophet Joel. Chapter 1. I'm going to give you a few verses throughout the entire book, which is only three chapters long anyway. Prophet Joel, chapter 1, verse 15. 
where Joel says, Alas, for the day. For the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. That's pretty explanatory. What happens on the day of the Lord? Destruction. We might say wrath. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. That would be the shofar. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. What's interesting, and it's just an opinion, but the trumpet blown in Zion could be the last trumpet that we talked about on Sunday. Why? Because he says, for the day of the Lord is coming. And that last trumpet of God, 1 Corinthians 15.52 and 1 Thessalonians 4.16-18, that last trumpet of God is blown before, prior to the day of the Lord. So that may be what he's referencing. I'm not going to say it absolutely. You don't have to have that as doctrine, but that's a possibility. The day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And then he describes it, verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There's never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Note that this is a one-time event in all history. Nothing will ever surpass the day of the Lord. Okay? Skip on down to verse 11. There's a lot here, and you can read through the whole book and get the fuller picture. But verse 11 tells us the Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. For strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Skip down to verse 31 at the end of chapter 2. Where he says the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape as the Lord has said even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now Peter quoted that verse on Pentecost, Shavuot. That, that Jewish holiday that was inauguration day for the church. Acts chapter 2. And so one thing that we can understand immediately about the day of the Lord that is absolutely clear is that the day of the Lord speaks of the tribulation. And note that. Go through Joel. You read about the thick darkness and the, and the disaster and the destruction and all that comes and the tribulation. When you hear that phrase, if you're unfamiliar with it, it all has to do with the time of God's wrath being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. It is coming. It is proclaimed. And as we said recently, all the way back to Enoch and the seventh generation of Adam, this time of God's outpouring of wrath is coming. The tribulation, Jesus called it that. The day of the Lord throughout Scripture. Seven years, which you can account by both Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, and by reading through Revelation 6 through 19, you get a very, very clear picture that this time of God's wrath is a seven-year period of time of the outpouring, first of the wrath of the Lamb, and then secondly of the wrath of God. And it's poured out throughout that entire seven-year period prior to the second coming of Jesus. Now let's be clear. You might say, wait a minute. 
Tribulation is prior to the second coming of Jesus, but you said the trumpet sound and the, and, and the Lord coming for His people is before the tribulation. Exactly. So here's a piece of the timeline. The rapture of the church happens first. And we will really see that on Sunday morning. And then the tribulation. Not because of the rapture. It's not kicked off by the rapture. Another event will start the tribulation. But the rapture precedes it. The church is called out. The ambassadors are removed before the war begins. So the rapture happens. Then a a span of a seven year tribulation. After which Jesus then returns in his glory. So truly, the second coming of Jesus Christ, according to literal scripture, is a two pronged event. He comes first for His people to meet us in the clouds, in the air, and so we shall forever be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4. And then He comes and sets foot on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14 tells us. So it's two events of one major thing that is taking place. Now stay with me because it's all part of the day of the Lord. Look at verse 2 of Joel chapter 3. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means God judges. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Have we seen that happening in Israel? The division of God's land? Anybody at the UN raising their hand and saying, excuse me, but can we just ask God what He wants to do since it is His property? Does he want it divided or not? And scripture is very clear. He does not. Verse 3, they have cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. This has all taken place against the Jewish people across 2,000 years prior to their coming back into the land. But the division of the land continues to take place. Now this valley of Jehoshaphat is the Jezreel Valley in Israel. Some of you have seen it. It is a vast, lush, beautiful spread of a valley. Plenty of of, of things that now grow there. It's farmland. It's, It's absolutely breathtaking. And it's wide and great. And it is in the Jezreel Valley that God will judge, get this, note this, the nations. The judgment of nations is part of the day of the Lord. That is not the same thing as the final judgment before the great throne that's talked about in Revelation 20. That happens later. So the day of the Lord not only includes the tribulation, but it also includes then, at the end of it, the judgment of nations, because that's what God's going to do in the Jezreel Valley. And it's very clear He's going to judge the nations. Matthew 25, Jesus describes that in the parable of the sheep and the goats. You remember that parable? People get confused because they say, wait a minute, the king comes and he divides up the people... Like, you know, to the right and to the left, like a a shepherd would divide the sheep to the right and the goats to the left. And people get confused because the whole basis of that division is, what did you do? It's works-based. Well, salvation is grace-based. So how does that work? Well, it's not a judgment of people. It's a judgment of nations and how they treated Israel. I believe during that time of tribulation. Uh, that's another study for another time. And there's so much that can pour into these, these considerations. But look at verse 18 of chapter 3. In that day, Bible students, what day are we talking about? The day of the Lord. In that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. 
And the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound like judgment. That actually sounds kind of nice. I mean, I could picnic there, you know, take a little vacation there. Doesn't that sound nicer than judgment? We're still in the day of the Lord. And Joel 3.18 now is beginning to describe the front end of the millennial kingdom. Guess what? The day of the Lord encompasses the millennial kingdom as well. Confused yet? I'm just getting started. So the tribulation, the judgment of nations, the millennial kingdom getting underway there in verse 13, and the day ain't over yet. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, and the verses are all up there behind me, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Hey, that's what Paul said, isn't it? In 1 Thessalonians 5, which we will get back to. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Where, when does that happen? At the end of the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand years out. And you might ask, okay, so you're telling me, Rick, that the day of the Lord includes the tribulation, the judgment of nations, the millennial kingdom, and the destruction of the heavens and the earth. That's all the day of the Lord? It's a long day. And yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And I came to this understanding literally over years, not a a few weeks, not uh, a few months, but years of looking at this and realizing how a literal understanding of Scripture, when you look at the day of the Lord, everything I've told you, the tribulation, the judgment of nations, the millennial kingdom, and the final destruction of the heavens and the earth, which, by the way, opens up the door to the new heavens and new earth, that all of those things are referred to in the Bible as the day of the Lord. And you might say, well, it's just got to be metaphorical. No. It's got to be allegorical. Not so. It's all one day. That doesn't make sense. How do we put that together? It's best understood if we look at it in terms of the Jewish day. Think of the Yom. Yom is the the word for day in Hebrew. Yom Kippur, day of atonement. The, The Jewish day, Yom, when does the Jewish day begin? At sundown, at night. Think of it this way with me. Three parts to the Jewish day. You begin with the Jewish day at night. Sundown and nightfall. So the day of the Lord begins with darkness. The tribulation. And that darkness runs through those seven years. Read Revelation 6-19. through You get the picture of it. It's striking in detail. It's horrible. And you don't want to be here. I still marvel at Christians who say, I think it'd be kind of cool to be left behind and shake it up, you know, you know, take out heathen for God during the tribulation. No, you go and be taken out. How do you even know you'll survive the first great earthquake? Much less the meteors falling from the sky and and the seas turned to blood and all that is prescribed in the judgments that fall during the tribulation. You do not want to be here. It is not for you. It's night. And the Jewish day, Yom, begins at night and runs through darkness. second part of the day is it continues through the next day at sunup. And then on into the noon hour and into the afternoon. So guess what happens? First you have the darkness of night at the beginning of the day and it gives way to the light of day, the millennial kingdom. 
And it's a beautiful picture. It just fits the glorious return of Christ, the dawning of His kingdom age, the literal thousand-year reign of Christ, all part of the light of day, Revelation chapter 20. But the Jewish day then ends with sundown. So you're saying it'll be dark again? I'm saying at sundown, at the close of the day, at the close of the kingdom age, when the heavens and earth will be done away with, sundown, day's over. Well, what does that do? Again, it opens the door for the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, when all things are made new and God does a completely new thing, which will be amazing. But Peter is very clear in his language, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for, he says, and hastening the coming day of God, not the day of the Lord, but the day of God, because of which the, her- the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. That's at the end of the millennial kingdom when the judgment seat takes place, not the judgment seat for Christians, but the great throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20. How do you know this? Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. Note that. The judgment begins. What happens to the heavens and the earth? They flee. They're gone. They're destroyed. That is, I believe, the point that Peter is talking about, the destruction of the heavens and the earth as we know it. It will not be destroyed before the millennial kingdom, but at the end of it, at that time of judgment. And John writes in Revelation 20, verse 11, and no place was found for them, that is for heaven and for earth. Because again, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. Guess what is described in detail after Revelation 20, Revelation 20 and 22, 21 and 22. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. Are you with me? The day of the Lord starts with darkness, tribulation. It moves into light, the millennial kingdom, and then at the end of the day, you're back down to sundown. Heavens and earth are destroyed. There is the great throne judgment. And then we head right on into eternity, which is marvelous. So that's it, kind of in a nutshell, or at least in a day. If you want me to clarify it a little more, I think this quote is very good. The day of the Lord denotes the day when God intervenes in history to judge His enemies, deliver His people, and establish His kingdom. And that is all part and parcel the day of the Lord. So when Paul says, go on back now to 1 Thessalonians 5, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, well now we know exactly what the day of the Lord is, it will come just like a thief in the night. That's important. He doesn't say Jesus will come like a thief. Because Jesus is not a thief. Okay, The devil is described as one who steals, kills, and destroys. Jesus gives life, and abundantly. But the day comes like a thief, in that it is unexpected, it is surprising, it catches people off guard. By using this phrase that the day will come like a thief in the night, it's interesting, Paul reveals a remarkable understanding of Jesus' teaching. Of the teaching specifically that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24. Keep that finger in 1 Thessalonians 5. In Matthew 24, verse 42. 
Matthew is to the left of Thessalonians. Right at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew 24, verse 42. Now you might wonder, well, was Paul there on the Mount of Olives when Jesus gave this teaching? Probably not. But he was with Jesus in Arabia and other places having a massive training program prior to his ministry. And he understands this full well. Here's what Jesus said about the thief. Matthew 24, verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. How many of you believe that Jesus will come before I'm done teaching tonight? Show of hands. Okay, the rest of you just made it all the more possible. Because he's coming at a time when you do not think, wow, he's not going to come tonight. Careful. (laughs) You're just increasing the odds. (laughs) No, we don't know the day or the hour, but again, we are not to be ignorant of the times and the seasons. And understand this, a thief is only a thief to the one who is caught off guard. He's not a thief if you know he's coming. He's not a thief if you've invited him. You know, what, what, what person do you call a thief who, you, who you've invited over to dinner? Unless, of course, they steal one of the plates on the way out the door. And Deb, I need that plate back, sister. I'm kidding. A thief is only a thief if you are caught off guard, if you are not aware that they are coming. Go back to First Thessalonians. You might keep a thumb in Matthew 24 because we may come back to it. 1 Thessalonians, again, chapter 5, verse 3, he says, While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. We've talked about this before. What do labor pains do? Well, they hurt. That's a man's response. They hurt. I had a headache once. I mean, big deal. They increase with frequency and severity. They come more and more often. They come closer and closer together. The closer the birth is coming, the closer together the labor pains. And the more intense the labor pains as well. And you ladies know this. I went through three different biological births of my, of my first three kids. I had to suffer through those with my wife. I know the pain. No, I'm kidding. Obviously. But the intensity... Just gets more intense, more painful, and more frequent, and that's exactly what we see going on. If you read Matthew 24, and Jesus describes what he calls the birth pangs, and now Paul writes that these, this destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child. Well, a woman with child, rarely does a woman just have a baby suddenly. Didn't even know I was pregnant. There it is. There's always a run-up to it. There is always the intensity and the frequency of the pain of the birth pains, and then it happens. And so Paul has given two profound descriptions here of what's coming. One, the thief in the night for those who don't expect. And for those who are ready and willing to read the signs of the times, watch what's going on. Jesus talks about earthquakes. Have you ever looked and considered the increase of earthquakes over the last hundred years? 
since they began measuring earthquakes, and I don't have direct statistics for you right now, but I have looked at this, and the increase of earthquakes is stunning in terms of the intensity and the frequency of earthquakes on planet Earth. It's like if you could graph it just going straight up. All of the other things talked about, the, the people are perplexed at the roaring of the sea. What has the ocean done in the last several decades that we have seen? What other things have you seen going on? Have you seen the love of people growing cold? Have you seen the increase of lawlessness? Again, read Matthew 24. We won't go through that tonight. But look at the birth pangs as described by Jesus there. Or Luke 21. Or Mark 13. And as you look at the birth pangs, consider, are we seeing an increase in frequency and severity of these things? Absolutely we are. And these things will increase in intensity until they give birth to the day of the Lord. Which will be then the pain and the anguish that planet Earth has never known. The wrath of God that is going to be poured out on this planet has never happened before. But it should come as no surprise. Well, why do you say that? Because history repeats itself. How many times have we seen in history God give warning, clear indication that wrath was about to come? Just look at Israel. Warning the people of Israel what's about to take place. Man, Jeremiah, the last of the prophets there in Israel before the fall and the destruction of the first temple. And listen to his words. If you read the book of Jeremiah, just listen to chapter 6, verse 13. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, note this, peace, peace. But there is no peace. Isn't that what Paul just said in verse 3? While they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them. In the run-up to the fall of the first temple, Solomon's temple in 586 B.C., that's exactly what was going on in Jerusalem. The false prophets, the priests were all telling the people, hey, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they said, look, the temple's standing. God's not going to let Jerusalem fall. We've got the temple. We have the Shekinah glory of God in the temple. We're fine. We're good. What they didn't see is what Ezekiel saw. And that was the exit of the Spirit of God from the temple. But they put all their faith in the temple and in Jerusalem rather than in the Lord. They were not listening to Jeremiah who was saying destruction is coming upon us quickly. They didn't pay attention and the city fell. And they went off into Babylonian captivity. We see that in history. History repeats itself. And let me put it to you this way. Yesterday, over 1,200 Jews went up onto the Temple Mount. Pretty cool, huh? Why is that cool? Because it's the largest number of Jews on the Temple Mount, at least in this generation, since coming back into the land, since retaking Jerusalem in 1967, it is the largest number of Jews ever to all at once, or on one day at least, to be on the Temple Mount. Over 12, I think it was 1,263. What were they doing up there? Well, yesterday was Tisha B'Av. 
you Bible students might know, Tisha B'Av, it's the ninth of Av, the month of Av in the Hebrew calendar, typically falls around our late July, early August time frame, which makes sense because that's where we are. Yesterday being August 1st for us was the ninth of Av. What is the ninth of Av? It is a day of mourning for the Jewish people. This is a celebration. It's not biblical. It's not God didn't prescribe Tisha B'Av. But the Jewish people have maintained, have commemorated the ninth of Av for thousands of years now. Literally going all the way back to, the well, the late first century. So for a couple thousand years, this has been remembered on an annual basis, the ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av. Why? Well, because the rabbis say that it commemorates the five calamities. Five calamities. Number one, on Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, the rabbis say they trace it all the way back to the 12 spies returning with a 10 to 2 negative report and beginning the 38 years of wandering in the wilderness. That happened on the ninth of Av, according to the rabbis. Did it happen on the ninth of Av? I don't know, but that's the traditional view. But what we know did happen on the ninth of Av was the second calamity. That is the fall of the temple in 586 B.C. Solomon's temple destroyed by Babylon on the ninth of Av. Guess what? In 70 A.D., on the ninth of Av, Rome destroyed the second temple. The fourth calamity. So first calamity, the twelve spies. Second, Babylon destroying the first temple. The third calamity is, is Rome destroying the second temple. The fourth calamity happened in 135 A.D. On Tisha B'Av, Rome crushed what was called the Bar Kokhba revolt. And the following year, on Tisha B'Av, 136 A.D., Rome plowed over the Temple Mount. Days of calamity. But in addition to these, continue to track down what else happened on the 9th of Av in history. It's stunning. The first crusade began on the 9th of Av in 1096 A.D. 1.2 million Jews ended up massacred in that crusade. On Tisha B'Av 1290 A.D., all Jews were expelled from England. Can you imagine? All Christians, get out of America. You're expelled. Where do we go? We don't care. Get out. All the Jews in England kicked out. In 1290, on Tisha B'Av, same day. Now, in 1306, on the 10th of Av, all the Jews were expelled from France. Why? Because they were Jews. No other reason. On the 7th of Av, in 1492, as Columbus sailed the ocean blue, he sailed the ocean blue on the 3rd of the month of Av. On the 7th of the month of Av, the Spanish Inquisition began... And all Jews were expelled from Spain. And all of these things happening right around that same time frame, this day keeps coming up again and again and again in the history of Israel. So it's no wonder that today, on the 9th of Av, Jews in Israel around the world and around the world pause and commemorate it. In Jerusalem, they have a, and Tel Aviv and throughout Israel, they have a, a minute of silence on that day. What's interesting is only about 12% of Israelis actually keep the commemoration, which involves 25 hours of fasting to make sure you fasted throughout the entire day. Well, I didn't tell you this. In 1492, you know how Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Well, Columbus was a believer. He was a Christian. 
there's evidence that he was also of Jewish descent. And that perhaps part of the reason why he sailed away on that day was because as he sailed, the Spanish Inquisition was beginning and the Jews were being expelled from Spain. So he's sailing off to find the new land. It's interesting that that happened at the exact same time. Finally, on 19, on Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av, 1941, SS Commander Heinrich Himmler on that day of the Third Reich received formal approval for Hitler's genocidal final solution, which would result, thankfully, not in the decimation of Israel, but in the murder, sadly, of six million Jews. And that was handed down on the 9th of Av. See what I mean when I say history repeats itself? History is going to repeat itself again? Jesus set the prophecy of Joel in Joel chapter 2, verse 2. He repeats what Joel says, a little bit different, but the same concept in Matthew 24, 21. If you still have your finger there, look at Matthew 24, verse 21. Listen to Jesus who says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And if you track all of those Tisha B'Avs, all of those times of mourning, all those calamities of Israel, track them down through the years, and they just seem to have gotten worse and worse and worse. The worst one ever was Nazi Germany. The greatest loss of Jewish life, the worst massacre of Jewish people ever, 1941 through 44, through that time of the Holocaust. But Jesus said, and again clearly, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now I'm pointing that out, Now I'll try to be more specific on this on Sunday, but there is a view of the end times called preterism. And preterism teaches that all that the book of Revelation says took place in A.D. 70. That the destruction, that at that fall of Jerusalem and when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, that's when it all took place. And they look back to that. The problem is you have to deny what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21. Because he said there will never ever be anything as horrific as this. Ever again. When this happens, what he describes as the great tribulation and what some people try to say happened back in AD 70, he says when this comes down, there will never be anything after it that even compares to what happened. The problem is when you compare the Holocaust with A.D. 70, there is no comparison. The Holocaust was far worse. we got to take the Bible at its literal source, and especially Jesus, to say what He means and to mean exactly what He says. Now go back to 1 Thessalonians 5 if you're not there. In verse 3, Paul is very specific. He, he, he talks about this tribulation. And the tribulation will be worldwide. It will be global. Applying to all unbelieving people. But note how Paul says this. While they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child. And they will not escape. Who's they, them, and they? Well, it's the whole world. And it is unbelieving Israel. Tragically, Zechariah chapter 13 verse 9 states clearly that only that two-thirds will be lost in the tribulation. Two-thirds of Israel will be wiped out. God says one-third I will bring through the fire. 
that one-third of Israel will be believing Israel who come to faith in Jesus in that time of tribulation and they will be saved. Romans 11.25 where Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. That's who he's talking about. But it's not going to be without great cost. And the problem is they're saying, peace, safety, it's all cool, everything's good. And it will be sudden and it will be intense. And the day of the Lord is for Israel. Get that in your minds. The day of the Lord is not for the church. It's for Israel. How can you say that? I'm not saying that because I want it to be that way. Nor am I saying that because God wants it to be that way. It's because it is that way. He has already foreseen this to happen. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 6. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Praise the Lord, no. But he says, ask. Why would he say this? Jeremiah says, why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? What Jeremiah was describing was pain. Horrific pain where men are feeling the same kind of pain. I was told that diverticulitis actually feels as close as a man can get to a woman in the pangs of childbirth. Cheryl shakes her head. I've dealt with this thing, and I think it's close. I've done some writhing. Jeremiah describes that kind of writhing. He says, why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for the day is great. And again, here he goes. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. And so that tribulation period, it is a time, it's a final alarm, the day of the Lord, a final alarm to wake up Israel. And it is God's judgment on a sinful world that has rejected the only opportunity for salvation in Jesus Christ Himself. Rick, we're only three verses in. I But you had to hear all of that. We have to go through that and understand the prophetic significance of what Paul is referring to in these three verses. Why? Because now we can get into the concern Paul had for the Thessalonians. And it is this. That they would understand and that we would understand as well that the day of the Lord poses no threat whatsoever to those who belong to Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, this is not for you. The day of the Lord is of no consequence to you. You will not be here. You will not be here halfway through it. You will be not be here for some portion of it. There are so many just interesting perspectives that people have tried to come up with and hoops to jump through to explain when the church goes home. Some say you're going to be all the way through the entire tribulation. So button up, buckle up, get ready to go. It's going to come down. And we got to slog through it. There's one verse in chapter 5 tonight that absolutely declares that's an impossibility. And there are those who say, well, midway through, we're going to you know, endure the first three and a half years, and then boom, we'll be pulled out. Same verse applies. We'll get there in a few minutes, hopefully. It is not for you. The Thessalonians were worried that perhaps they were starting to get into the tribulation. Maybe they had missed this this hope, this blessed hope, this rapture of the church. Did we miss it? Are we left behind? Well, Paul's still here. So that's a good sign. But maybe he was wrong. Maybe this is not how it's supposed to go down. Verse 4. Paul says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. 
You're all sons of light. You're sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. And Paul beautifully juxtaposes here the concepts of day and night. And he uses synonyms to paint a bigger picture. You've got day, you have night. You have light, you have darkness. You have wakefulness, you have sleeping. You have sobriety, you have drunkenness. And these are all various or variable pictures of day and night. And the day is coming, the day of the Lord, when the thief in the night arrives. The day comes like a thief in the night. The day itself. What does all this say about those who are sons of light and sons of day? If you're a son of light, night has no bearing on you. If you are a son or a daughter of day, night has no bearing on you. It is not for you. Sons of, where Paul uses this, and it's the only time in all of Paul's letters he ever uses the phrase sons of. And he uses it a couple of different times here. We are not, we are all sons of light and sons of day. And it's a very common Hebrew idiom that refers to a people who are like-minded. So all those who are of light, all those who are of the day, we're day people. (laughs) No, I'm a night person. You don't want to be. Are we sons of light? And if we are sons of light, listen, this goes right to the heart of Christian living. Do you as a follower of Jesus Christ choose light and wakefulness and soberness? Or do you choose darkness and sleeping and drunkenness? Do you choose agnosticism? See, as we talked about on Sunday, not knowing. That's darkness. Do you choose sleepiness or lethargy or laziness? Do you choose to be out in the dark? Do you choose drunkenness? That is not really being aware of anything. Feels good in the moment, kind of. But I don't really know what's going on. It's funny, I guess. Do you choose these things or do you choose the light? Paul says in verse 6, Let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. By the way, sober is not boring. Sober is a lot of fun. Sober, you get to remember the enjoyment that you had that evening. You know? Sober is great. Sober is not dull. It's not a drag. Oh, you're sober? Yeah. And all the joy that we're sharing tonight, I'll remember it tomorrow. And I will wake up clear-headed I won't be, you know, in a hangover with a massive headache. I'm actually going to wake up feeling pretty good in the morning. Bummer for being sober. Where did we get this idea? Soberness is clear-headedness. It's, it's, it's right thinking. It's being alert and aware. In fact, the, the Greek word for sober is nepho, N-E-P-H-O, and it means clear-headed. And it also is a word that is used for watchful. All the things that we're talking about, do you know the signs of the times? You're only going to know the signs of the times if you're being sober, if you're watchful, if you are alert to them. Let me ask you this. If you knew that this week, if I could tell you absolutely between tonight and next Wednesday night, so we'll go seven days out, your house is going to be robbed, what would you do? Turn off the lights at seven and go to bed early and have a jug of wine on the way there? What would you do? Man, you would be lights burning, wide awake. I would have John Linus at my house with his guns 
loaded and ready to go, coffee brewing, making noise, making it as unacceptable for a thief as possible, because I know he's coming. I would be alert and watchful. But see, the world is not. Living expectantly to be called out by Jesus is living soberly, watchfully, wide awake, sons and daughters of light and of day. 